As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving and coming up today we'll talk Everton following that manic win against Chelsea that's breathed new life and belief into their battle to stay in the Premier League. Meanwhile, their former boss Carlo Ancelotti has just become the first manager to win the title in all of Europe's top five leagues. We'll get the latest from Madrid ahead of their huge Champions League semi-final against Manchester City. But to kick things off, I'm joined by the Athletics football correspondent David Ornstein. Two big stories you've broken in the last week, David. First of all, more off-field changes at Manchester United with the departure of Matt Judge from his position as the director of football negotiations. What's the story here? It's really significant because Matt Judge has been at the heart of what Manchester United have been doing in recent years. He was initially titled Head of Corporate Development. I don't really know what that meant, but in more recent times, it has been Director of Football Negotiations, and that's exactly uh, what it says on the tin. He has been leading the conversations, talks around contracts and around transfers. And that means that pretty much everybody you've seen either coming into United or extending their stay at United has done so with Matt Judge. He might not have been the only voice in the conversation because you had Ed Woodward previously as executive vice chairman, more recently Richard Arnold taking on the chief executive role. Everything has to be deferred up to Joel Glazer on behalf of the ownership. You've got John Murta in there now as football director, Darren Fletcher as technical director. But when agents sat down with somebody from United to discuss these things, it was normally Matt Judge. And not a lot is known about him. I think Laurie did a piece on The Athletic where you can find out a little bit more, but is a figure of mystery by and large. And we learned the news on Friday that he had tendered his resignation uh, from Manchester United. I think that actually happened a couple of weeks ago and it had stayed quiet until uh, The Athletic were the deliverers of this development. It brings an end uh, to his time at the club. We don't know exactly when because there will be a notice period, but it's kind of up to uh, Manchester United and primarily John Murta as to how much he wants to lean upon Matt Judge during that period. One of the points that I reported is that United do not expect Judge 
to play an active role in their summer transfer window, which is quite extraordinary, really, because it's round the corner. He was already in conversations about potential signings and contracts. He worked on the Eric Ten Hag contract and the contract for his potential assistance as well. But I think, Ian, the story behind this is that Matt Judge has been considering his future at Old Trafford pretty much since it was clear that Ed Woodward would be departing. And they were very close. They came through, I think, university and professional careers in the city together. And then, of course, United. And once Woodward left, the structure changed slightly and power was put more in the hands of John Murta, who they're really building around at Old Trafford, and Richard Arnold, who, unlike Judge and Woodward, who were mainly based in London, Arnold spends a lot of his time at Old Trafford. So there's already a delineation there with Murta largely at Carrington. And I think it got to the point where Judge felt his time was coming towards an end. Um, there's been huge scrutiny around the work he's done. And uh, he will be departing with clearly a bit of a mixed reaction and legacy too. Yeah, in terms of the timing of this and, and the decision to resign, how much surprise do you think there is around United that this has happened now? I think it was a shock to learn that this was actually happening because we've had the Ten Hag news, we've had the Andy Mitten exclusive on Jim Lawler, Marcel Boots leaving the recruitment department. We've broken news about a deputy football director coming into the picture at some point. One of the candidates is Andy O'Boyle from the Premier League. Changes of playing personnel as well. I mean, the period of flux we're seeing at Manchester United is just extraordinary. Woodward being replaced by Arnold too. However, I didn't have Judge Downers going as part of that. But... When it comes about and when you understand that he had been considering his future and he didn't feel right, perhaps despite having a good relationship with Murta, reporting into him, that line of command had changed. He used to go straight into Woodward and the owners. Now he has to go to Murta, Murta to Arnold, Arnold to Joel Glazer, Joel Glazer to Arnold, Arnold to Murta, Murta to Judge. That's something <laughs> that I can't even get my head around and, and he probably didn't like it too much. And, and, and therefore, it won't have been a surprise perhaps to people around him and that he had spoken to who have sensed his feelings. Um, many Manchester United fans reacting to our story seem to be pleased with the news because it would indicate to them that it's another step towards rebuilding the club in the direction that they believe they belong in and competing with the biggest clubs in the world. But it is pretty seismic because Matt Judge was so central to what Manchester United were doing that going into this massive period in their history this summer, he's gone and they'll need to replace him and we can talk about how they might do that. How do you think they will do that? Because like you say, it leaves quite a big hole, doesn't it, in, in United's hierarchy? And also, how much do you think this is down to the idea that this is a, a fresh start? Because in your piece, it, it details the, the idea that he's bearing responsibility in some senses for the huge transfer spend that United have had in the last decade or so, and it's not reaped the right rewards on the pitch, has it? That's a really good point. And I direct you straight towards a piece that Laurie and Adam Crafton have done on The Athletic, which goes into greater depth about Judge's departure, what it means, why it came about and where they go next. This sense of, of change and a, a turning of the page really is at the core of this. 
Um, but that would indicate that perhaps some new person would come in and be this shining knight that is going to absolutely dominate the contracts and the, the signings. And we've heard people like Paul Mitchell mentioned who has actually been endorsed to the United hierarchy by Ralph Ranier. But I don't think there are any active conversations or negotiations on that front. They made an informal inquiry for Dan Ashworth when it emerged that he was leaving Brighton, but he's going to be going to Newcastle. So, so they have been thinking around a replacement or adding strength to their structure. But what I think is going to happen is that they're going to build around John Murtagh and Darren Fletcher. I think the big question will be how capable professionally is John Murta of leading this project forward. He's not had a role of this magnitude in his career. And when you look at Liverpool with Michael Edwards and those around him, like Mike Gordon on behalf of the owners, Julian Ward taking over from Edwards this summer, various other really prominent and impressive people like Barry Hunter and Dave Fallows, Ian Graham. You go over to Manchester City, you look at Cheeky Bagiristain, you've got Ferran Soriano, Omar Barada, and a number of others as well. Chelsea have had Marina Granovskaya, supported by the likes of Petr Cech more recently, Scott McLaughlin on the long term as well. And Manchester United, it feels like a bit of a mess by comparison, but out of every crisis comes opportunity. And I think the United fans will hope that the penny is dropping with all of these changes, more of which we reported in my Monday column this week, and that United are finally realising that some tough decisions need to be made. Some people need to go, and I think more will go. Some need to come, and they need to really focus on those that they have and try and build things in the right direction. Of course, Ten Hag will, will want to say around things as well. He will want to, you know, shape the new era in whatever way he can. And it'll be fascinating to see how much autonomy and authority he's given to do that, or how much resistance he hits in the same way that previous incumbents appear to have. Yeah, speaking of uncomfortable comparisons, Liverpool, of course, are in Champions League mm. action tonight against Villarreal in the second leg of their semi-final. It looks like there'll be plenty more of these nights to come as well. Following the news that you first reported last week that manager Jurgen Klopp has extended his contract with the club. There's some lovely details in your in-depth piece with the athletic Simon Hughes as well. And the more you read of that, David, the more you realise that this was just an easy decision for all parties, wasn't it? Absolute no-brainer, Ian. Jurgen Klopp's one of the greatest things that has happened to Liverpool or any Premier League club. He's a top manager, amazing character, um, very, very good at building a, a team around him. And that's why he was so quick to credit Pep Linders and his assistants. There was a consensus in that he was going to be leaving at the end of his contract in 2024 and going and taking a sabbatical, which I think a number of rivals would have been rubbing their hands at. But then the pandemic hit and he had a number of personal issues. It was documented that he lost his mother very sadly. Um, he wasn't able to do a lot of the travel that he would normally do back and forth between Liverpool and Germany and, and potentially elsewhere. He was basically home al alone on Merseyside. There are all sorts of issues with the team, the defence in particular, the in injuries to Van Dijk and Matip and others in there too that meant their title defence didn't go to plan. Um, it was a very difficult January window. They made a couple of late signings to paper over the cracks and then finally, they started to see the light. And we actually broke the story about Ibrahim Konate signing for Liverpool, their one big signing of the summer. And they started to get 
things back on track and they came into this season and they've gone toe-to-toe with Manchester City in the Premier League, in the Champions League. They're into the FA Cup final. They've managed to pick up the League Cup as well. And at the heart of that has been Jurgen Klopp. He was exhausted, but he got a good stretch of months off in the summer to rejuvenate. Liverpool would have always been up for him signing a new contract. That's no question. So it was more on his shoulders. They would have had to be succession planning to an extent what they want to do beyond him. And I think there was suggestions of Steven Gerrard being the successor one day. Maybe he still will be. Pep Linders himself um, having ambitions to go into manager and knowing Liverpool inside out. But Klopp's the number one. And so if he changed his mind over this sabbatical, uh, then I think it would have been a very quick deal to be done. With the COVID absence, which was basically time lost, I think he felt that he owed Liverpool that year or even more back. He wasn't at his best. I think he and his wife, Ulya, who is incredibly important, as he's mentioned publicly, she was in the the away end at Manchester City recently. I was fascinated by her role in all of this. I I mentioned before about the detail in your piece, this idea of a a key kitchen table chat, which I think we've all had with our partners at one time or another, uh, being a a real reason behind this, this happening and giving her approval almost that she's happy in the area and she wants to stay part of this this atmosphere that they they seem to have at the club at the minute brilliant and she really is the the, the matriarch and and somebody that is um key to his life uh, professionally and personally and in recent weeks his mindset changed and he communicated that to his representative from what we hear and his representative made contact with the Liverpool ownership we saw that he came over I think it's Mark Kosica his name uh, the agent for the midweek match in the Champions League the first leg of their Villarreal tie but he was actually also to our knowledge at the Everton Merseyside derby the previous Sunday but it wasn't until the Villarreal match that he seemed to be spotted and reports emerged the following morning in the press with the likes of Paul Joyce in The Times, uh, Chris Bascom in The Telegraph, that Liverpool felt that Jurgen Klopp was now open to the idea of extending his contract and some talks had taken place and they were in a positive sort of momentum around it. So we very quickly made some calls ourselves and managed to establish that actually that contract was signed on that very day. Thursday. And so, yeah, we managed to break the story that he had added two years onto his existing contract, was set to expire in 2024, well, now in 2026. The same with his closest staff members, not, not only those who sit on the bench with him, but some of those in the background as well. And crucially in this story, Ian, we understand that Jurgen Klopp will retain the same salary and just extend his time at Anfield. But he wanted to see his closest staff gain a bit of an uplift financially and that's what's happened and I think that points to the measure of the man himself everybody's extremely happy and content I think he wanted to make sure that his staff wanted to continue and as soon as he floated this idea with them they were really enthusiastic understandably and so it was done and dusted very quickly and on they go into the future. Great news for Liverpool, terrible news for all of their rivals. The knock-on effect, I suppose, for Liverpool now is the effect that it has on some of the contract negotiations for their players as well, perhaps most notably Mohamed Salah. Do you think this is something that Liverpool could could show to Salah as the manager's now committed, it's your turn next? They can, and it's not a bad thing, but I don't think it is central to Salah's decision. 
And why I say that is because Klopp was already under contract for the next two years. So he wasn't going anywhere for the foreseeable future. Salah would have had to consider who would be the manager beyond 2024. And he now knows that will be Klopp. But I think Salah's decision at his age is really for the here and now and for the next couple of years. While it may help and be good news for everybody at the club, um, I don't think it was the determining factor in Salah. That appears to be slightly financial. Um, He sort of has denied that in a variety of ways in the interviews and, and messages that have come out from him and his representative. And then also the length of the contract is clearly something that's going to be key around security. There's a respect element here, I think, as well. He seems to be intimating that Liverpool should have moved heaven and earth for him, given what he's done for them, which is a fair point. He's been absolutely incredible, but Liverpool won't want to destroy their wage structure. And they're very careful in analysing what contracts to give to what players at what stages of their career and what they've still got to give in terms of their football and their influence on the squad. So many factors in this. And, you know, our recent impression was that a compromise would be reached. That hasn't happened yet. Um, There's been new reports about Paris Saint-Germain. So we'll have to see how that develops. But elsewhere, Ian, you've got the likes of Sadio Mane, who's out of contract in the same summer, 2023. Roberto Firmino, 2023. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, 2023. James Milner, this coming summer. And for them to hear that Jurgen Klopp is going to be remaining in charge for longer will be a key factor, but again, not the only factor because Klopp was here to stay. I think the bigger influence will be on those who are considering signing for Liverpool because you're going to be looking at four or five-year contracts. I know they only make one or two signings. I know the lure of Liverpool, their style of play, their atmosphere, the fan base, the DNA, the history, the chances of success is enough to pull you towards Anfield. But having Klopp, provides an X factor that nobody is going to ignore. And we think in the negotiations that players have had in recent years, the idea of Klopp being the manager has been a key source of conversation. Thanks, David. A pleasure, mate, always. And subscribers, of course, to The Athletic can read David's Monday column. And you can also hear about it all on the app or exclusively on Apple Podcasts for just 99p per month. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So after a more than eventful win on Sunday, all of a sudden there is positivity around Goodison Park as Everton fight to stay in the Premier League. Patrick Boylan covers the club for the Athletic and joins us now. Patrick, from the mischief making in the early hours to the welcome for the team coaches and then the desire on the pitch, what a day it was for the club. It was an absolutely remarkable 24 hours. You mentioned the the early wake-up. For for those that don't know, uh, Everton fans or what are alleged to be Everton fans, we should probably say, uh, congregated outside Chelsea's hotel in the centre of Liverpool, set off fireworks at about 3am. And some of Chelsea's players afterwards mentioned it as as being potentially a factor in the result. Jorginho had a big smile on his face, though, didn't he, when he was talking about it? It didn't seem like it bothered him as such, but he definitely woke him up. 
No, I mean he's he's played in Italy, so he'll be well used to. There is that, yeah. <laughs> those tactics, I guess. Um, but that was just the start of it. Obviously, we we saw fans welcome the Everton team coach before the game. I thought it was a remarkable display, uh, emotional, but also kind of a, just a, a strong show of support to a, a group of players that, let's be honest, have been underperforming for for much of the season. Fans almost taking it upon themselves to be the catalyst. For Everton in, in this in this kind of poor run of form, this, this poor season so far, trying to drag them, almost kicking and screaming over the line, and you have to say it had an impact. I mean, I was I was just having a trawl through social media earlier of of kind of various players and and their accounts, and Deli Ali said that the fans were the reason for the win. I mean, maybe it's a bit of lip service being paid here, but let's let's for now kind of suspend. This belief and, and take it on face value, and I'd say that yeah, it, it, it kind of it, it creates an atmosphere at Goodison, an, an unparalleled atmosphere at Goodison. When you compare it to recent years, uh, it was absolutely thriving. Goodison at its best, and and the players responded to get a, what could be a crucial win. Yeah, it shows the power of a growling Goodison. That's how it <laughs> felt. I wasn't yeah. there, obviously, but but listening to it and, and and watching it on the television, seeing the atmosphere. It certainly felt powerful. I guess the real question is, was the hero Richarlison with his winning goal or Myra the Dog? <laughs> uh, well, definitely Myra the Dog. Definitely Myra the Dog. The, the new talisman. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was just, just so funny to see what we believe to be a, a group of locals who were just wanting to take their dog for a walk around nearby Stanley Park. And this dog hoisted a lot. I mean, we were talking before recording. I said it was almost like the start of the, the Lion King where you've got Simba being <laughs> raised aloft and had a, had a kind of a, a fantastic response so far. It's got its own Twitter account. It was a unique day. I think unique is probably the best way to describe it. A day that probably only Everton Football Club could could conjure. And then Goodison was kind of at its visceral gnarly angry best and, and and kind of the players do respond to that I've, I've always said that I think Everton are, are at their best when they, they harness the crowd but then they also play a, a, a style of football that keeps the crowd interested for long mm. spells and it doesn't have to be long ball as Jamie Carragher kind of perhaps slightly incorrectly referred to it last night on on, on, on um, Monday Night Football but I think it does have to be intense it does have to be aggressive I mean, Everson's goal comes from Richarlison simply not giving up on a ball um, and chasing down Aspilicueta. Great finish from him as well. And, and he, I think, embodied the performance. He, he typified everything that was good about it, together with Jordan Pickford. So a, 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 great, a great day off the pitch, a strange day off the pitch and a strange day inside the pitch. But the culmination was, was, was a crucial Everton win. Yeah, it's sort of a, a trotted out cliche that, that fans... Uh, need to show up for games and need to have an effect on matches that players and managers tend to roll out ahead of important games at home. But the sense that Everton fans really did show up. But I wanted to pick up on something that you said a moment ago, the idea that they felt they had to and it was on themselves to do this because they couldn't trust the team. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that been the feeling for, for large waves of the season. Everton's away record is, is still the worst in the division. And the worst in the division by quite some way. Uh, their only win away from Goodison this season in the league came against Brighton back in August. And I think the last point they, they took on the road was, was December against Chelsea. So they, they just don't pick up points. Fans are, are used to seeing Everton fail away from home and early into Lampard's tenure and towards the end of Benitez's tenure, failed spectacularly on the road. So I think Everton fans have, have almost grouped together and, and decided that they needed to be the catalyst, but in the absence of 
of kind of real elite quality on the pitch and the in the absence of of kind of any semblance of away form they, they've needed to drag the players like, like I say almost kicking and screaming at times over, over the line one of the things that's been really apparent to me though over the last few weeks is that even when results have been poor and and when Everton have been in, in really dire straits I mean even before the game on Sunday they were five points off the relegation zone even in those circumstances the, the fans have stuck with Lampard on the whole, they, they like Lampard and have bought into what he's doing. They've stuck with the players at Goodison, even when they've suffered disappointments away from home. And it's it been a, a club united in a way that I've not seen for, for quite a long time. And maybe that's the, the big takeaway of the season. If they do manage to scrape through, it's that there's kind of a re- renewed sense of unity. And I suppose sometimes that only comes when when you're facing real peril, when you're facing the, the drop and, and, and need kind of some form of salvation. So, yeah, that, that's the big message for me, that, that, that kind of unity is, is probably Everton's best way to, to, to drag themselves through here. It's amazing that we've got this far into a chat about Sunday and not mention Jordan Pickford, who was an absolute hero in Everton's goal. An incredible performance from the England number one. Greg O'Keefe has written on The Athletic that it could yet be the definitive moment in Everton's fight for survival. Do you see it as important as that? I think it probably is. I think he's, he's, he's spot on there. The, the save from Aspilicueta in particular, it just, yeah, like you say, defies belief. I, I fully expected the net to, net to bulge there, but his, his recovery speed, his, his ability to, to pick himself up after one shot and get over to the other post to make, make a, a save, a crucial save in such a short space of time. It was stunning. It was a staggering save. Do you think he reacted more than any other Everton player to the, to the buzz of the atmosphere around Goodison? Because it, it, it's the, the, the trotted out line for him as well, really, that he's he's too emotional, it seems, at times. But that that's a key attribute for Jordan Pickford. I think without that, he wouldn't be the same goalkeeper. And, and Sunday showed that, didn't it? Yeah, I think quite a lot of people have looked, certainly on the outside, have looked to try and tame. Jordan Pickford, I've looked to turn him into something else. And definitely there have been times where I'd say he's, he's maybe let the occasion get the better of him. I, I think particularly to games against Newcastle, a, a time side where he's getting loads of jibes. He hasn't been able to control his emotions. There's been a lot of work done on that behind the scenes. And I think what you're seeing now is a, is a Jordan Pickford that's maturing, that is actually able to control himself a bit more. He's still seeing some of the the, the kind of the, the the antics and you're still seeing him fist pump after he makes saves but I don't necessarily see that as a as a huge negative as long as he's as he's focused on the the corner afterwards the next shot the next the next save and the, the thing that was really important for me was he, he makes the save from Aspilicueta but more or less straight away he has to make another save and it's does he switch off in that moment has he switched off or is he or is he alert to the danger and the ball hits him square in the face from, I think it's Rudiger at the back post. But he makes himself so big. Again, he's really fast off his line. His, his reaction speed, fantastic. And I think sometimes we get caught up in this idea of a goalkeeper as being this, needs to be this kind of 6-4 Goliath. It needs to be this big strapping physical presence who comes off and comes off his line, takes every cross and gets to everything that's right in the top corner. But there you saw the value in those two moments. Of somebody who's a bit smaller, he's still he's still tall by conventional standards, he's still six foot over six. But you saw that he was able to, to leap off his line, he's agile, he's able to get down to things that some other goalkeepers just wouldn't reach. And I, I kind of posted flippantly on Twitter yesterday that if Everton had a big lumping goal, the big lump would have just been picking themselves up as the ball hit the net from Aspilicueta. And like I say, that's the value of, of Jordan Pickford. He's been a, a rare shining light for Everton this season. 
been a lot of poor performance on the pitch, but he's one that's constantly put, put his hand up and constantly kind of stuck his head above the parapet. Um, sometimes it's this erroneous narrative that he only performs for England, and I, I constantly back that back when I, whenever I see that because because I think he's been good now for, for the best part of the season for Everton. And Greg speaks about the the, the, the save from Aspilicueta. It was only a couple of weeks ago against Manchester United that Ronaldo had a, an effort more or less in the last minute at the same part of the ground and Pickford made a, another fantastic reflex save. So it's not just one game, it's not just one moment, it's a series of moments collectively that, I mean, if Everton get over the line, we'll look back on them and, and say, well, yeah, Jordan Pickford was the one that kind of dragged them through. Before I let you go, I'm going to have to pop the bubble of positivity just a little bit, Patrick, forgive me. They're still in the relegation zone at the moment. I mean, how much work is there now to build on this result? Because there's been results in, in recent times, I'm thinking of the Newcastle one that was billed as this turning point, as the as the moment where Everton dragged themselves out of it and it's not quite happened. What makes you think that this Chelsea win might be different? I don't know if it's going to be different. That, that's the honest answer. Like you say, there have been various moments that you, you thought would be watershed moments for Everton over the course of the season. And it just haven't it just hasn't turned out to, to, to be that way. Um, like I say, I think at least this time there is a sense that the fans have stuck with the manager through thick and thin. There is a sense that there's a renewed connection between the players and the fans. No side now is going to want to come to Goodison between now and the end of the season. I mean they've got they've got winnable games against Brentford and Crystal Palace at Goodison in, in, in the next couple of weeks. And a, and a couple of away games before that against Leicester and Watford that they should be looking to take points from. So the fixture list has eased up a little bit. It's not quite the way it was when you were looking at it and going, well, there's Liverpool away, Chelsea at home, Man United and Leicester at home. Where are they going to pick up points? The, the, the fixture list look, looks kinder. Uh, Richarlison's picked up form. He's, he's really you know, kind of stood up in the last couple of weeks and become a ta- talisman on the pitch. Jordan Pickford too, so they just need to take that momentum and, and back up this result with another positive result against Leicester on Sunday, even if it's a draw, just to keep the momentum going. And if, if, if they do, if they do put together, I think, any kind of run now, whether it's kind of two wins on the bounce or three wins on the bounce, then I think they're OK. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. No worries, pleasure. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. 
Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Right, Carlo Ancelotti has become the first coach to win all five major European leagues after leading Real Madrid to the Spanish title. Next up, of course, is their Champions League semi-final second leg with Manchester City. Dermot Corrigan joins us from over in the Spanish capital ahead of that match. And Dermot, there's quite a stark comparison, isn't there, between the chaos of that first leg in Manchester and the way that Madrid have coasted to the Liga title. Yeah, it is kind of... It's, it's interesting, I guess, for people who've only seen Madrid are on the TV, you know, and these amazing comebacks against Paris Saint-Germain and the game against City where they're they've on this wave of emotion, the way, the way they play and they, they pile forward and throw players into attack. It's not been like that really in, in La Liga at all. Um, when I came in last season, there a lot of problems. You know, Ramos had just left. He had a lot of... Um, they didn't sign Mbappe. He had players like Bale and Hazard and guys who were stuck. He was kind of stuck with and had to try and make it work. So he eventually kind of fixed on a kind of counter-attacking system where they, they'd sit deep, they'd try and hold the ball with with Modric and Cruz when they could, and then hit on the break with Benzema and especially Vinicius, who you know went from being this guy who was kind of a figure of fun, who you know went on these amazing dribbles and then had no end product into like guy who was scoring amazing goals at the start of the season. Benzema has been brilliant, and they've just kind of relied on that. They've been hard to beat. Only lost three games all year, and um, were able to beat their kind of their rivals for the tournament all the time. Like they beat Sevilla twice, they won away at Barca, they beat Atletico, but without shining. It's not like when you had you know, Ronaldo and Bale and Benzema like flying and scoring like three, four, seven, eight goals a game. It's not been like that at all. There's been a lot of like one nils, two nils, just keeping it tight, scoring, just doing what they had to do to win it. And in its way, that's been, you know, almost more impressive because, you know, it's not what you expect it to see from Real Madrid. No, in a sense, people are sort of starting to say it's been easy for them uh, because it's been a, 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 a win at a canter in a sense. But with Barcelona's problems, with Atletico's problems, it was more about sort of keeping the heads, wasn't it? And, and motoring through and just trying to deal with the issues that they had, which maybe weren't as big as the, the rivals' problems. Yeah, for sure. Like Barca, Barca had an awful you know, start to the season under Ronald Koeman. They were losing to Drive Icano and people like that quite regularly through the first half of the season. Atletico never really got going. Simeone kept changing his tactics, kept changing his team and, and nothing seemed to work. And Madrid have motored away with it. But this is Madrid. You know, there are... There were potential for issues for slip-ups. Like they, they lost at home to a sheriff in the Champions League. You know, you'd bail and hazard not getting in the team. You all these things that sometimes at a club like Madrid can blow up into, you know, big scandals. The manager's under pressure. Players are starting to kick off in the press or getting their agents to kick off. The president gets involved. All the kind of stuff that tends to happen during a season at Madrid. And Chilotti's just able to to handle it without just keeping calm. He knows what to say in the, in the media. He's been really good. He's been good with the president. He's been good with the dressing room. He's kept everybody, more or less everybody on board. There are a couple of players who are a bit annoyed, but it hasn't affected the team. And, you know, that not every manager will be able to pull that off. But Ancelotti was was able to do it really impressively. Yeah, not every manager is able to pull off smoking cigars <laughs> either with his squad to celebrate. That's a, a brilliant image from the weekend and the celebrations over in Madrid. I mean, that sort of sums it up, doesn't it? This this quiet calmness that, that Ancelotti seems to have. How much of a key attribute has that been for him this year back in the Spanish capital? It's been super important for him. Like he, He's just kind of given off this uh, this image of, or this feeling of just being really happy to be back as well, you know, getting out of Everton and, and coming back to Madrid, the city he knew. You know, his, his partner has family here, his son as well has, you know, connections, family connections to, to Spain. They all just seem to, 
to, to like it here. And he's just been able to, to handle everybody. You know, he, he talks a lot to, to the players one-on-one. He keeps the mood good at training. He doesn't allow things to get out of control. But he's hard on them as well. You know, he makes sure that the team work. If you're not able to put in the, the effort that he needs in the game, physical effort in the game, say Hazard, for instance, or Isco, Marcelo, people like that, who, you know, multiple Champions Leagues, they've been eased aside, not used very much, but without causing any of the, the kind of scandals that, that you get at Madrid. And Ancelotti, you know, deserves full credit for, for that. That's, that's his achievement. Yeah, and that's the theme of a lot of the successes that he's had down the years. It's in the piece that you've contributed to on The Athletic. A lot of the same sort of feelings and qualities come through in Ancelotti's management during his time at Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid and so on. Let's look ahead to Wednesday then, Dermot. What can Manchester City expect in this game? Because that first leg was brilliant, wasn't it? It's been amazing to be at the Bernabeu for the games against Paris Saint-Germain and against Chelsea. And one of the, the strange things of it was that in both games, Madrid had times when they just played really badly, that it looked like they were going to lose and were 3-0 down to Chelsea. Mbappe, a couple of offside flags, they could have been out of the tournament at that stage. But then just uh, switch clicks and suddenly the whole stadium gets behind them. You know, they score a goal. Benzema does something amazing. Modric hits the pass. And, and no team has been able to deal with it. Even, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, super experienced. You've got Messi and Neymar and people like that. Donnarumma, you know, won the, the Euros with Italy, but it was his mistake. Chelsea won the Champions League last year, full of experienced players, but they kind of lost their heads as well. City, it's going to be really interesting. It was at the, the Wanda as well for the Atletico game, the second leg with City. And they, you know, they looked a bit rudderless in the second half against Atletico. Atletico might have scored in that game. City, you know, there's so much about control and using possession to, to keep the pace of the game or to decide the pace of the game themselves. They won't be able to do that for the 90 minutes against Madrid. Maybe they'll come out and score two goals again. Because Madrid, you know, don't defend that well in, in, at the very high level. You know, Alaba's probably out of the game as well. So City, it's more a mental thing. Uh, will be my, you know, my impression will be that if they can keep their heads, if they can not let the the atmosphere get to them, if something goes wrong in the game, if they're able to to not um, lose their heads at that stage, then they should go through. But you know, logic and and Real Madrid in the Champions League this season hasn't hasn't really gone together. Yeah, speaking of keeping their heads, um, Sam Lee, the City correspondent for the Athletic tweeted a quite incredible summary of uh, of the Spanish side in the first leg. He said, an esteemed colleague said yesterday, Real Madrid are the type of team you have to kill, cut the head off and bury seven metres underground and their heads are still on here. I mean, not many teams can concede four goals in the first leg of a semi-final in the Champions League and still be alive in the tie. And, and like you were just saying there, this idea of almost coming into the PSG and Chelsea matches as underdogs, certainly in moments in the games, and still managing to stay in there and hang in there and then have these brilliant moments that Karim Benzema seems to be at the centre of to, to blow these teams away. I mean, City just need to be on their guard, don't they? There's absolutely no way they can go there feeling like they're the favourites. Madrid just have this belief, like and where it comes from. Like, if you're Benzema or Modric, you've, you've been through it all. You, you've won lots of Champions Leagues. You know what it takes it in these games. There's also players like Vinicius or Rodrigo's come in and done really well. Fede Valverde, Militao at the back, who are who are young guys, but there's something about it's just contagious the the belief that Madrid or that the senior players have Ancelotti as well, who just kind of keeps them calm, get, keeps them motivated, knows when to to put on players to to take them off. He's done, you know, took off Cruz in the semi final and put on Camavinga. Everybody was like, oh, what what's going on here? But but it, it worked out well. And City, yeah. <laughs> Like Guardiola talks a lot as well about how the history, well, everybody at Madrid talks about how, you know, they're the kings of Europe and history plays a big role in these games. You can be a bit sceptical about that, but Guardiola also says that City, you know, it's only our third European Cup semi-final. It seems a bit weird in that these players have won, you know, multiple Premier Leagues. They're all experienced internationals. But there is just something intangible about 
about the Champions League. I've seen so many comebacks. City have been involved in them before, Spurs, when they got to the final. It's been great for us as, as fans to, to watch it, um, for the players. And I think for Guardiola himself, it's not so much fun. Um, there's that clip of when Vinicius got clear against uh, in the first leg, and he's still on halfway, Vinicius, but Guardiola's down on his knees. And he's like, that kind of does transmit itself to the players, I think. And you can contrast it with Ancelotti, who, you know, even when things are going bad, you don't see him tearing out his hair on the sideline or making three subs at halftime or anything like that. Um, that do, does does impact on the players and, again, will be a, be a factor on Wednesday, I think. Just to look beyond Wednesday then to finish off, what sort of a summer do you think's ahead for Real Madrid? There's lots of speculation already about the likes of Kylian Mbappe, Antonio Rudiger maybe arriving as well. And what's the future of Carlo Ancelotti? Ancelotti, after the first leg against PSG, when it looked like Madrid might go out of the Champions League, it might be humiliated a little bit. Even winning La Liga, you know, may not have been enough for, for Ancelotti to keep keep going. Then they had the Clasico when they lost at home to Barca as well, which wasn't good for him. But I think now the way things have turned around that, you know, he, he's definitely going to be there. Even if they go out to, to Guardiola, which would be hard to take for, for some at Madrid, he'll still be OK. Everything's about Mbappe. Same as it was last season. All the, the transfer decisions, all the transfer thinking, scheming that's going on at the Bernabeu is all around trying to get Mbappe in. So that means that, you know, players are up for sale if it means they can get the money to to, to persuade Mbappe to come. Rudiger is a good example of how Madrid have been quite smart at, at picking up players in recent years, going back to Cruz, Courtois, Alaba last season, just getting experienced guys for, for the cheap, really, because Madrid don't feel they can compete at the very top of the market anymore with PSG or, or with City or Chelsea or, or maybe Newcastle, who knows, in, in the future. So they need to, to be smart about it and use the allure of the Bernabeu to, to get players in. Then there's a lot of people out of contract. Uh, Bale is out of contract. Isco is out of contract. Marcelo, Hazard, you know, maybe, well, they definitely snap somebody's, you know, somebody off of 50 million or something for Hazard. They, they take it. The squad is aging. Benzema, Modric, these guys are, are getting older. But again, it, it all comes down to Mbappe. Sounds like you're going to be busy. Thanks, Dermot. Cool, cheers. Ian. And if you want to know more about Ancelotti's success in La Liga this season and, of course, across his managerial career as well, this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast takes a deep dive into the various systems and methods employed by Ancelotti on his journey to winning all of those titles across Europe. <laughs> That's it. If you want to read more on all the stories we've discussed today on The Athletic, you can subscribe now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Coming up on this feed tomorrow then, Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes will be taking a closer look at the last Premier League relegation spot. And then on Thursday, Mark Chapman and Matt Slater will be here with the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.